Long before the um, events this last week in Boston, I, my mind started drifting to the Boston Marathon, knowing that April is traditionally the month for the Boston Marathon. And I was thinking back to 1980. Um, there was a, an event that, the, the, when the Boston Marathon took place, something happened that had never happened before or since that period of time. In 1980, Rosie Ruiz won the women's uh, division of the Boston Marathon. I want you to see her image up on the screen. Uh, this is a picture of Rosie at uh, the Victor's booth. Uh, she was brought in for a press conference. And in 1980, she did something that was incredibly remarkable. Um, as a matter of fact, to qualify for the Boston Marathon, she had to run first in the New York City Marathon. And in the New York City Marathon, she finished with a time of two hours and 56 minutes. Now, that's extraordinary. Uh, she finished 11th overall in the New York City Marathon. And then came the Boston Marathon because she qualified for it. Uh, here's what's remarkable. She finished with a time of two hours and 31 minutes. It was unheard of. She was not known by anyone. She had no trainer, no professional coach. When the news media came up to her and began asking, how did you gain this ability? Um, she revealed that she had had no training secrets whatsoever. And it was stunning to individuals because what she had done, whether or not you have a running experience, to improve your time in six months from the New York City Marathon to the Boston Marathon, to improve your time by 25 minutes within six months is unheard of. So as a matter of fact, her time was so remarkable that she finished third overall in the history of the world as the woman's fastest marathon runner. Now that in itself is just amazing. Until individuals came up alongside her and other world-class athletes, women, mind you, and men, began looking at her thinking, I've never seen you before. I don't know who you are. And your thighs are a whole lot flabbier than a marathon runner. What's going on? Now, as news media got closer to her, they noticed she wasn't panting. There was no heavy breathing. As a matter of fact, she wasn't even sweating. Now, this was really confusing to people. So they began examining and looking in. And after a couple of days, they found out what was really going on, that apparently some witnesses had seen her bolt out of a back alley a half mile before the end of the race and join the rest of the crowd. Now, what Rosie had done is she had started the race, jumped on a Boston City transit bus, rode across town, went into this alley, came out of the alley thinking she was re-entering at the middle of the pack with the rest of the women, not knowing she had jumped in with the men at the front of the pack ahead of the fastest women runners. And when she crossed the finish line and found that the police were escorting her right to the press booth, she decided to play along with it. So when one news media individual came up to her and put a microphone up to her and said, Rosie, what explains your ability to finish the race in this way? You are the fastest woman ever in the history of the Boston City Marathon. This was her response. She said, well, I woke up with a lot of energy this morning. Not a good answer for a marathon runner. Now here's the reason I bring this up. Rosie is a poser. Rosie Ruiz posed herself. She looks like a marathon runner. She has the outfit, the clothing, the tennis shoes. She finished the cross line. She, she crossed the finish line. She was a poser. And this is why she popped in my mind. Back in October, when God laid on my heart to teach the book of Ephesians, 
I realize that Ephesians 1 through 4 is really set up to the real heart of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, for chapter 5 and chapter 6. Because what God does is He calls out those who would be pretending to be Christians, those who are posing, because it's possible to have posers in the church. People who are here out of discipline as opposed to devotion to God. And so Paul's heart out of love for individuals is saying, check yourself. Check yourself very, very carefully to make sure you're not someone who just looks like and sounds like, but rather you're really sold out to God. Now we're about to step into some very dangerous material. So here's what I'm asking you to do first of all, and I know you've probably heard people say this before, but as much as is possible, if you could just set aside your personal views and your social views and your political views and recognize there's only one view that counts and that's God's view. And we're about to look at His Word and what He has to say to us about a very, very important issue. And, and, and to the degree that we separate ourselves away from the approval of men and look for the approval of God. There was a time when Jesus was talking specifically to a group of individuals at a dinner party. Jesus came to the dinner party. Lazarus was there. He had recently been resurrected from the dead. Leaders of Israel had begun devoting themselves to Jesus and recognizing He really is the Messiah. But they were afraid to say so in a public fashion. Let me show you this passage on the screen. It comes from John 12.42. It says this, Many even of the rulers, this is at that dinner party, mind you, many even of the rulers believed in Him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing Him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That's a haunting verse. It's a very dangerous verse. That we can align ourselves with God, believe in Jesus Christ, and say, yeah, I'm in, but because we love the approval of man so much that we buy in to social values, we buy into political values, or we allow what our Edna might have said to us to shape our thinking about God. Well, I'm going to pray for us right now that as we step into Ephesians 5, verse 1, that we would really have the mind of God. Would you join me in that prayer? Father, we ask that you would clear our thinking that we come here with hearts surrendered to You so that You can speak to us. We're, we're interested to know, to, to know what Your view is and to understand Your character in Your nature to the degree, Father, that it would shape our life. So we ask that You would form us right now in the midst of this next few minutes ahead of us. Help us with our thinking that we would see truth through Your Word. It's in Jesus' name we ask for this. Through the power of Your Holy Spirit, Amen. Go with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 5 and verse 1, if you would. We've learned in chapter 4 that because we walk in holiness, and you'll see this on the screen, um, that our, our walk is to be one that's a worthy walk. And we also have discovered that our walk is to be different from the world, according to chapter 4. Uh, verse 17, that we're supposed to be different than the pagans. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, the, the Gentile lifestyle. 
So Ephesians 5.1 really kind of delineates for us what that is. Ephesians 5.1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Uh, the word therefore, it's kind of hinging back on where we left off last week when Paul ended chapter 4 by saying, be tenderhearted, be kind, be forgiving to one another. He's, he's reminding us that's God's nature. That's who God is. He's infinitely that way. So we've got to imitate the source. So he says, therefore, be imitators of God. Now, why does he bring that out? Well, this is Jewish language. It's a very familiar conversation among those who studied under a rabbi. And Paul studied under Gamaliel. And under, under Gamaliel, who was his rabbi over the top of him, when he was studying to be a Pharisee, Paul understood this word mimitase, to imitate, is one who mimics their leader. You see the definition on the screen. It's literally where the English word mimic comes from. And it's someone who wants to copy or follow someone so closely that they take on their characteristics. This is what Paul is telling us. If we're children of God, we're going to be imitators of Him. And that's the word mimitase. So what we're learning is He transforms us into a new creation to the degree that we can actually walk the way God walks. So that when people see you, when they see me, they think Jesus. They think godly person. That's the degree by which He transforms us. Now, a very familiar passage to us is John 14, 6, in which Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What's not so familiar is verse 7, in which Jesus says this, If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Because Jesus brought God who was far away and unknown by the people of that time because He was distant and removed. Jesus brought God near so that we were so near to Him we can actually trace His steps and we have the ability to mimic Him, mimitase Him. So we're discovering God's purpose in redeeming us is not just to save us from hell, but so that He can conform us to the image of His Son. So in verse 2 He says, if you're going to be like God, if you're going to mimic Him, you're going to walk in love. Now, there's a biblical definition for how we walk in love. And I don't know about you, but maybe when you think of, of God being love, you might think of He's just a big fuzzy teddy bear. Well, there's a better definition for it than that because that's kind of very general. A biblical love is not the emotion of just feeling good. Biblical love is the giving of yourself. So it's not going to be on your notes, but um, it's going to be on the screen this morning. If you pull your notes out in the white space on the right-hand side, you might want to write down these four characteristics of God's love. And these four characteristics come right out of the Bible. Very specifically, the very first one is that God's love is disinterested. Uh, let me clarify that for you. It's disinterested in getting anything back. Think of it in this way. God loved us while we were yet sinners, meaning we couldn't do anything for Him. We had no ability to give anything back. So God's love is disinterested in getting something back. We can't make Him any more glorious than He is because we're sinners. So in the exercise of our love, we can't consider whether we're going to gain anything back. God doesn't consider it that way. So that's number one, it's disinterested. Number two, it's generous. God's love is unsearchably rich. 
so generous that even for his worst enemy, he doesn't want them to miss out on the glory of heaven. Now, he said that for us in 2 Peter 3.9. You'll see it on the screen. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish. See, that's our God. Our God is generous with his love, and he doesn't hold it back from anyone. He's also, number three, he's self-denying. In Jesus, we see that. He denied everything that he had in the way of glory of heaven. He gave up everything that he had. He denied himself, emptied himself, we're told, and he became a curse in place for us. He became a curse so that he could deliver us from the curse. So that tells us we can't even hesitate to lay down our life. That's the kind of biblical love that we're talking about here. Disinterested, generous, self-denying. Here's the fourth one, constant. God's love never stops. Now, just think about the disciples walking with Jesus for years, three years, and they walk with Jesus. Do you think they ever irritated him? I know that they did. As a matter of fact, in the third year, when Jesus is getting very near the cross, he's talking about who he is, and apparently they have just a dull look over their face because Jesus says to them, are you so stupid you're not getting this? And the word that he uses is dull, but the translation for that word is moros, which is moron. Are you so moronic you can't get this? I mean, he was irritated with them. But God's love is constant. So even though he gets irritated, it's constant. He loves right to the end. And it's self-denying. And it's generous. And it's disinterested. So you'd have to say, it's not natural to love that way. I, I can't love that way on my own. So we can't do that in the flesh. It's supernatural, which means it requires the new nature, the new creation, and it requires the power of the Holy Spirit. So since biblically defined love is so contrary to who we are by nature, it requires constant reminders, and that's why Paul said what he did in verse 2. He gave himself up for us. That's why he's ending verse 2 that way. He gave himself up for us as an offering, as a sacrifice. And then he uses a really Jewish phrase. He says, as a fragrant aroma. Now that goes all the way back to Leviticus chapter 1. When we're told that God commanded the Israelites to have five offerings before him on an annual basis, and the first three offerings were to be burnt offerings. Now, I love steak as much as any guy, okay? I love to smell something burning on the grill. Not to the point where you can't eat it, but man, get out the A1 sauce and I'm good. So when I think of fragrant aroma, I'm thinking steaks on the barbie. Yeah, that's a fragrant aroma. Well, that's not what Scripture's talking about here. When it says fragrant aroma, it's referring specifically to the aroma that God received as a soothing fragrance, Scripture says, because His people were obedient to Him. See, God doesn't need to smell the steak burning on the grill for it to be a fragrant aroma. It's the soothing aroma of the sense that people did exactly what He commanded them to do. So when you see Jesus doing exactly what God commanded and required you see a fragrant aroma. That's why Paul says it that way. It's soothing to God, and it was acceptable. Go with me to verse 3 because it a bit turns on a dime here. But immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. 
And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. I don't know how you define immorality today or how you define impurity today. It, it seems to be a moving target in our society. Things have become very, very gray about what's immoral and what's moral. But first, you have to ask yourself this question. How could Paul be writing this to the church about church people, telling them not to talk filthy and not to be engaged in silly talk or coarse jesting? Well, we learned in the last couple of weeks in the first century in Ephesus, it was a really pagan environment. And a lot of these people had just come out of the world, the worldly behavior. And so he's reminding them, Christians don't look like this. This isn't what you're supposed to be doing. So we've learned that they've experienced things beyond the scope of our experience, a really, really pagan lifestyle. So just to be very clear about how this fits into our world in 2013, when Paul uses this word immorality, he's using the Greek word porneia. And porneia is the basis for the English word pornos, pornography, porno. It's where it comes from. And it's referring literally to all sexual sin. Because all sexual sin is sin against God and against godly love. It's not consistent with who we are. So he doesn't just stop with immorality. He goes on to the word impurity. Now, impurity is another Greek word, but it generally refers to anything, anything that is unclean or filthy. Jesus uses the word when he's describing the Pharisees of their heart on the inside. When he's talking to them and he says, you guys, you look good on the outside, but inside you're a sepulcher, you're a grave, you're rotting, decaying bodies. So what it's referring to here specifically is the immoral thoughts and, and passions. It's rotten. Now, we can't change immoral or impure under the biblical definition to be something else. It is what it is. Immorality and impurity can't be modified or altered. What they are is wicked. It's wickedness, and it's an offense against our holy God. Now, we get that. We understand why he would say that, that the church can't be associated with immorality or impurity. But why does he throw in the word greed? That seems like it doesn't really fit there. Well, here's why. Sin is so attractive and so promising. It's so hopeful. Spouses are abandoned. Children are neglected. Homes are destroyed. Because a person is so consumed with, I have to have it, to the degree they'll neglect everything else. And so that's why greed is thrown in there, to that point where it overtakes their life. So God's standard is really clear. In verse 3, he says, these things, they can't even be named among you, not even named within your presence. So these actions in no way can be justified, not in any way tolerated. And he goes on to a little bit more detail when he uses the words filthiness and silly talk and coarse jesting. I won't go into great detail, but just let me help you with that a little bit. Silly talk is the same word I just mentioned a few minutes ago um, when I said moron. It, it, it means dull, it, it, without any point whatsoever and no purpose. And what Scripture really is referring to is gutter talk, trash language. And so that's a very general term, but the next one that comes up, coarse jesting, is not general, it's very specific, it's very pointed. And it's talking about someone who has really quick wit, and they hear someone make a statement in a social setting, and they corrupt it to mean something immoral. You see it in late night talk shows. 
individuals who skill and trade, they're very good at what they do and they have quick wit. They hear someone that they're interviewing in the midst of a talk show make a comment and they quickly twist it to mean something else. That's coarse jesting. Paul says this can't have any part of who you are. Now, we're about to step into something that I'm forced into and not unwillingly, but still nonetheless forced. Like when we studied the book of Revelation or the book of Titus, when a passage comes along that might be uncomfortable, You still have to take it on. There's no picking and choosing. You can't skip over it. And verse 5 is one of those where I'm forced into dangerous territory because of what society says about certain sinful behaviors versus what God says about sinful behavior. And let me show you what those are. Let's go to verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, first of all, there's an encouragement in the midst of that. And the encouragement is that if there's some that don't have an inheritance, that means there's some that do. And we, if we're believers in Jesus Christ and obedient to his word, we're heirs to a kingdom. We are heirs to something that God has set aside for us. But the converse is there's some who don't have an inheritance because of what they choose to do to live opposed, egregiously opposed to God. And this is where it gets really harsh. Because when he talks about immorality, impurity, and greed, covetousness, when individuals are carrying out this kind of activity, they are doing so willingly, choosing to separate themselves from the God of the universe. So that's why Paul is unambiguous when he says in verse 5, for this you know with certainty. In other words, there should be no confusion. None whatsoever. God does not tolerate sin and perversion leads to punishment. Now, I want to be really clear about this. These warnings that we're about to deal with have to do with habitual sin. Not someone who occasionally stumbles in or a Christian that finds himself caught up in a lie and unwillingly didn't want to go there or willingly in some cases. But what we're talking about is individuals who day in and day out practice habitual lifestyle that is completely opposed to God and they look like posers. So no matter what they might claim about having a relationship with Jesus, if they're not consistent in their walk, God says they have no inheritance. Their life pattern is habitual immorality. So God's children have God's nature. And a habitually sinful person demonstrates they don't have a godly nature. And I think personally, it is really dangerous to give someone that they have an assurance of their salvation to someone where there's no biblical evidence for the assurance if their lifestyle doesn't match what they say they believe. Let me just give you an example of that from Scripture so you don't think it's just coming from me. 1 John 3.9 says this, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know the children of God, who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Now, Scripture is very general there, but it gets really specific when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There are habitual sins that are listed out in detail that prove that a person is not walking with God, whether they claim to be or not. And here's where it comes from, and I know it sounds incredibly judgmental, but understand, this is where we set aside personal feelings, we set aside social feelings, we set aside political views. 
and we look at what does God have to say. 1 Corinthians 6.9 Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. So God says, no matter what society claims, a life dominated by sin indicates a person who's out of his will. And just like was true in the time of Isaiah and as was true in the time of Ezra is true today in 2013, there are those who seek to call evil good and who call good evil. And it's true in our society at this time. We see it constantly. So Isaiah said, Isaiah said in chapter 5, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil because the wrath of God's going to come upon those individuals. So Paul goes even further into verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now if you're like me when you're reading it, you're saying, what things? What's he talking about? What things when he says these things? Well, first of all, understand that Paul said people are going to attempt to deny this. That's why he started out with verse 6. Let no one deceive you. How? How can they deceive you? By trying to tell you that sin is tolerable and that God will not hold them accountable. Well, the truth of God's Word is He does hold them accountable. And sin is not tolerable. God does not put up with it. So Paul said these are empty words, and they're full of error, meaning in the Greek language, they're devoid of truth. There's a big void there. There's no truth. So therefore, it leads to deception. And he said the wrath of God is going to come upon them. Now, we learned last week when we talked about the different stages of God's anger that God's wrath is something that builds slowly over a period of time. It's very deliberate. It's very concise, but it's patient because God is not willing that any would perish. And so we think of God's wrath as being explosive, but God is rather deliberate. Now, in the first century, we find that false Christians came among the church and tried to teach people that you can live however you want to live. It doesn't matter. You're saved by grace. And so they tried to live just like the pagans. So what did Paul do? He wrote Romans chapter 6, and when he said, can we continue in sin that grace would abound? God forbid! It shouldn't be among Christians. That's not the way we're supposed to live. You're playing the grace card as though it's going to save you from that pagan lifestyle. So personally, here's where Mark Kring stands on this. I believe... No true Christian can ever be lost or can ever be separated from God. But a true believer proves their faith through an obedient life. They don't earn their faith, but they prove their faith. It bears out in their life. Now, here's the problem. However, today, many true believers today have a watered-down understanding of what it means to walk in holiness because the church, unfortunately, has stopped teaching on these issues. And I'm talking about the church around the world. They stopped teaching about what God says when he drew the line in the sand and said, this you can do, this you cannot do. You want to walk before a holy God and look like someone who's worthy of the calling by which you've been called? Just read my word and I'll show you what it means to walk in holiness. But a lot of people have shied away from that because we want to be liked. That's really the truth. The church wants to be liked. We don't want people to come in and get offended and leave mad at us. 
So we stop teaching on things like this, and it gets gray and watered down. And pretty soon, the church loses its understanding of what God's standards are. So thank God that he moved the heart of Paul to write to that young church coming up out of that pagan society in Ephesus. So we have these things today. Now, verse 7 helps us to understand that since we're imitating our Father, since he, he is the one that we mimic after, we have nothing to do with darkness. Verse 7 says this, Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Verse 8, For you were formerly darkness, but, you are, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Uh, a scripture uses a very figurative image when it talks about light. Um, there, there's two forms of light that's pictured in the Bible. F- first one is the intellectual form of light. And that, that's speaking of a light that represents truth. Those things that we know that we know that we know to be true because God's word says it. And then the other figurative image is um, the moral side where light represents holiness, okay? How you walk, the things that you know to be true how they bear out in your life, and how you walk before a holy God. So to live in light, according to a biblical definition, means to live in truth and to live in holiness because both components pertain to what a person believes and to what they know. And what you believe determines what you do, right? What you believe about God determines what you do next. Um, Let me flesh that out for you just a little bit. In Isaiah 5, I referred to that just a moment ago. It says this, Isaiah 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. So what we're told here is that society has a temptation to take things that God said are good and call them evil, and take things that God said were evil and call them good. Now, God's Word says, thus saith the Lord, this is what your standard should be. So we know that we know that we know intellectually, and we know that we know that we know morally, so therefore it should bear out in the midst of our daily walk, how we conduct ourselves, as opposed to being pulled along with the crowd, so that we're not in a position where we find ourselves walking in darkness when we say we belong to the light. Because everyone who belongs to God walks in the light, both intellectually and morally. Here it is in Scripture, 1 John 1.5. This is the message that we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, what it's doing, it's meshing up the moral side and the intellectual side saying, wait, if, if you believe it with your mind and you believe it with your heart, then you ought to be walking as though you're in the light. But if you don't believe it, you're not going to walk that way, apparently. So Paul is really positive for us here in verse 8 when he says, you were formerly darkness, meaning you're not there anymore. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're no longer in darkness. It's past tense. It's something that's no longer true of you. So both intellectual and moral darkness are a thing of the past. You're now in the light. Verse 8, but now you are the light in the light of the Lord. What we are, regardless of what you feel about your past, regardless of what you think of your previous mistakes, that's all in the past, regardless of what your parents have told you 
or regardless of what your friends might have said about your lifestyle, if you are in Jesus, you are a new creation. This is the truth of Scripture. He's using past tense and present tense imagery here because Colossians 1.13 tells us, Jesus delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So we're really familiar with Jesus in John 8 telling us, I am the light of the world. You, f- you familiar with that? Not just me, right? Everybody's heard that. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. There's an interesting transformation that takes place when Jesus gets to the end of his life. And he's talking to those who are going to carry on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it comes from Matthew 5.14. He no longer is referring to himself. He's talking to his followers when he says this, you are the light of the world. Amazing. We get to be who Jesus was here on planet earth. That's awesome. We get to carry on the same thing that Jesus carried on before all of society. That's a heavy responsibility. You are the light of the world. Jesus, I was the light of the world, and I still am, but I'm removed. So now, my followers, you have the responsibility. You are the light of the world. So Paul ends up that last part there in verse 9 by saying, there's three fruits that are going to come out of you if you're going to be the light of the world. You're going to be full of goodness and righteousness and truth. And without this fruit, there's no evidence of the life of God. Now, it gets even a little more harsh than what we've just talked about. Go with me to verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Ooh. It kind of makes you sit back in your chair a little bit, right? Because that's uncomfortable. Expose them. Go forward with me and we'll come back to that. Verse 12, For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So what we discover is our responsibility goes further than just not participating in the ways of the world. Instead, we're even to expose them. Because if you ignore evil, you encourage it. Just to remain silent allows it to flourish. So Paul uses a really specific word here in the Greek language when he uses the word expose. And it's a word that's associated with reproving someone. Not for the sake of embarrassing them. Not for the sake of calling them out in the crowd just so you can humble them. That's not what we're talking about here. The word that's used here for expose means for the purpose of discipline. We're supposed to confront sin the same way that God would confront sin which means without tolerance. God does not have tolerance for sin. He has tolerance for us. God is very tolerant and loving towards us, but he does not have tolerance towards sin. So often, open rebuke is necessary. And silent witnesses will only go so far. So a a failure to speak out and practically oppose evil things is a failure to obey God when he says, I want you to expose them. Now, here's an example for you. It comes from Matthew 18, and it's done in different stages. It's very sensitive stuff, but just hear me out on this. In Matthew 18, there's the imagery that um, a man who's in Christ, and I understand we're talking to believers here, and Paul is writing to believers in Ephesus. But in Matthew 18, we're talking about someone who is involved in sin. So Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. That's first stage. Second stage is this, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two of the church leaders with you and confront him and call him out. And the stage three is this, 
if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. Talking about church discipline. That's an example of how God expects every Christian to carry out their responsibility. That you and I would be so mature and so holy in our walk that it's a natural course of our life to rebuke evil when we see it. Here's what I know, though, in 2013 to be true. Many Christians do not rebuke evil. And there's reasons why. The first one that I notice is they don't take it seriously. Especially when the airwaves of our radio and television and our computer internet programs are, are just blanketed with evil. And it's done in such a crafty way that, you know, you just got to admit, some of it is incredibly funny. All right? And some of the sitcoms that are written on television, pretty soon you find yourself laughing, laughing at the things that God said were evil. And, and too many Christians are so caught up in that, they don't take it seriously and they don't see things evil the way that God sees them to be evil. Here's the second reason. They have too much personal involvement in evil. I'll just kind of leave that one hanging out there. You can decide where you're at on that issue. But many Christians won't speak against things because they feel like they're too much into it themselves. And that leads into the third one, which is we don't want to be judgmental. And Scripture says, you know, judge not lest you be judged, right? And we're all very familiar with that passage. But there's some very specific things that are being talked about in that particular passage. But right now, understand, we're talking to believers. We're talking to people who are in the church. And we speak with the authority of God when we speak with God's Word. Most people don't know God's Word well enough to speak with the authority of God's Word, though. And so they, they back off. And they're not willing to go there because they don't want to be someone who's passing verdict. Well, if you're using God's Word, you're not speaking according to your own feelings. Let's understand it this way. It's not, thus saith Mark, okay? It's, thus saith the Lord. These are God's standards and what He has to say. I know it comes up to issues of interpretation, but just understand, that's why I believe most Christians don't rebuke evil. So Paul says we've got a primary resource. He doesn't leave us hanging. He says you've got a tool. And here's what your tool is, and it's found in verse 13. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. What is the light? God's Word. Jesus is the light of the world. We are the light of the world. You are the light of the world, he said. And we've got God's Word. So we're able to expose things. It says, but all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. Verse 14, for this reason it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So all things become visible. Now Paul's thinking back to a first century marketplace. Somebody would go to the stores. Now in the first century, these buildings were built in long, narrow corridors and they backed right up to each other and there were no windows and there was no artificial lights. You couldn't hit a light switch. So someone finds themselves in the very back of a store and they pick up a garment, something that they want to buy and they can't quite see it because they're in the darkness. So they have to bring it out into the light of day where if there's any flaws, any ugliness to it, the light has exposed it. That's the language that he's using here. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. He's using first century language. So our commission, church, is to hold things up to the light of Scripture and saying, this is what society says, but what does God's Word say? This is what my Aunt Edna says, but what does God's Word say? This is what my political party says, but what does God's Word say? 
What does God have to say into this issue? Because light shows things as they actually are. My wife does not like to go into fitting rooms, into women's dressing rooms, because she says they have such bad lighting in there. And she'll come out with a piece of clothing that she had spent time selecting in the store and then walk into the fitting room and say, I don't want this. The lighting is terrible in there. Sometimes she'll say that about mirrors too, right? And and just the lighting is what it is. It it exposes things. It exposes flaws. And it shows clothing sometimes the way that we don't like it. Well, according to Scripture, when sin is exposed to the light of truth, the ugliness is seen. And that's where we get the pushback. Because sin is ugly. And no one wants that light to be shining on it when they're involved in it. So that's why we have this resource. And Paul ends it with an invitation. He's saying, awake, sleeper, and arise. Who's he talking to? People who are sleeping right through God's time of grace need believers to come into their life and say, hey, what you're involved in here is not consistent with a godly lifestyle. You've got to walk as one who's worthy of the calling by which you've been called. The light of Christ will shine on you. So he's giving an invitation here that someone would not sleep through a time of God's grace that he would wake up to his predicament. Why? So that there's no posers in the church, that we all stand as the true light that God said that we really are. Sensitive stuff, isn't it? Let's pray about this and ask God how he would help lead us through this week ahead. Father, we've looked at uh, your word this morning and we've Pray that you would bless that and honor that, that we've taken this time to investigate what you have to say. You have the power through the work of your Holy Spirit to speak into each of our lives individually. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, whether children or or senior citizens, that you would convict us about personally, first of all, where we are, because we can't speak into someone else's life, God, unless you've dealt with us first. And, and once having dealt with that, God, we ask that as we walk forward in this week that you would lead us gently into conversations, that we would speak the truth in love, but that we would speak the truth. Help us, Father, to be bold on behalf of your kingdom, for your glory and for your honor. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. And all God's people said, amen.